let me get right down to it. Every day, every day, I struggle to live the Christian life. Something is always nearby and near at hand to trip me up. Angry words or impure thoughts or desires to get back at people or justification of my own selfish actions. Egotism or greed, vanity, pride. I'm acquainted with all of them. And so I resonate with the Apostle Paul's struggle when he writes, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do. But I, what I hate, I do. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil, I do not want to do this, I keep on doing. So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I get it. Sometimes I say to myself, self, Phil, how can you speak the gospel and out of that same mouth come those words you just said? And how can you pray and then get up and be so self-centered? And then how can you call yourself a follower of Jesus and think like that and act like that? Paul says he keeps on doing the evil he doesn't want to do. There is nothing more frustrating to me than the repetition of the same wrong. There are some things I just can't seem to shake. I ask forgiveness, and I know Christ forgives me, but then I ask God to create a clean heart in me, but I find myself oftentimes doing the same thing. Paul says it's a war raging in him. It's a battle. Thomas Merton looked into himself and confessed to God, I am a bombed out city. In many days, I see the ruins and I'm disgusted and discouraged and absolutely disheartened. Paul gets down to the very core, I think, of human nature. Now, let me tell you something that your therapist, your psychologist, your psychiatrist, your barista, your yoga instructor, your auto mechanic may not tell you. You have something working inside you called sin. You may think that sin is an old medieval concept left over from some less enlightened times. Or it's a simplistic explanation for problems of deeper complexity. Well, it's ironic that as our culture dismisses and scorns and jokes about sin, we're becoming sicker, more despairing, and more spiritually confused. And we know how to kill and terrorize and put down and manipulate and ignore and abuse and be less nice to one another like never before. We're feeling worse about ourselves at the same time when we're grasping for whatever the latest theory is to make sense of our constant messing up might be. We've been told this story, you see, that we're basically good. And that sin and evil are in bad people out there. We're good. They're bad. Jesus pointed out, you know, it says you shall not murder and that someone who murders is liable to judgment. 
But he said, if we're angry with someone else or we insult them, we're under that same liability. We have murdered. He also said, while it says you shall not commit adultery, all you have to do is look at someone with lust and you've done the same. Don't listen to Jesus if you want to feel better about yourself, by the way. He tended to tell the truth. And as Augustine pointed out a long time ago, as he came to terms with his own struggle within himself, how we love the truth when it enlightens us, but we hate the truth when it accuses us. Paul says this thing called sin, it's living in me. That word means to reside. It means to set up house. There's something inside of us that makes itself at home. Setting up furniture. Eating out of our refrigerator. Staring at us across the table in the morning. And then it's there with us at night too. And the source of evil is not from somewhere out there. And the problem is not in our systems. It's in ourselves. We say, you know, society is messed up. Society is only us. There really is no them. Sin is like an infection. And it's not a matter of trying harder. Willpower is not able to conquer it. Some people think, well, if we can just make the right societal adjustments in education or the system, we can get on top of this. Paul says it's beyond his choice. Sin is a power inside of you and me causing us to do what we don't even want to do. We aren't the captain of the ship. We're a prisoner on it. The struggle with sin now doesn't mean that we're not capable of good. Doesn't mean we aren't beautiful or capable of beauty. We are all created in the image of God and we bear the image of God. But we've all missed the mark in the standards of God. We're not fully what God intended us to be. We're not as good as we sometimes think we are. And what good is in us is there because of God's grace. One person called our sin... Our active inclination to break stuff, like promises, like relationships we care about, like commitments, like loyalties. In Psalm 22, David cries out that he says he was conceived in sin. It's not even learned, it was inherited. And you know, it's hard for us to think of that sweet, wonderful church member or neighbor as sinful. But no one stands perfectly before the perfection and the holiness of God without blemish. Everyone stumbles. Everyone has their moments. And I have seen the dark side not only of myself, but even of the dearest people. This human potential to mess things up can't be managed into respectability, though we spend a lot of effort. And I'm speaking of those of us who come here. We spend a lot of effort to do that. But the first step to finding hope in this struggle is to admit it. It's to be honest about the mixed bag that we can be and how on the one hand we want to and we strive to honor Christ and yet on the other hand we can be so prone to failure. Like a man named Francis Buford says, He is done trying to arrange all the bad in him so it is more flattering. 
or so that it tells some credible story about himself. He says, no, I'm deliberately abandoning the enterprise of making sense of myself. And Paul said, I don't understand what I do. I've stopped trying to make sense of myself. Now, we can believe all the chatter about our basic goodness and our virtue, but Jesus, you know, he spoke quite a bit about something called self-righteousness. You know, it's interesting that while many people point the finger at Christians as being hypocritical, those same people are often convinced of their own rightness in everything about themselves. Again, Francis Buford, who's a, who's a historian in Britain, former atheist, he's now a Christian. And he says there's a hypocritical contradiction between how virtuous we claim to be and how human beings really are. For Jesus, being sure that you are righteous and standing on your own dignity as a virtuous person comes precious close to being dead. If you won't hear the bad news about yourself, you can't know yourself. You condemn yourself to the maintenance of an exhausting illusion, a false front to yourself, which keeps out doubt and with it keeps out hope and change and nourishment and breath and life. If we won't hear the bad news, we can't begin to hear the good news about ourselves either. If we can't sign off on our sinfulness, we have no room or need for Christ. And you are on your own. And you are caught up in something that no therapy, medication, fitness regimen or vacation or spiritual discipline is going to take care of. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of the faith, read this passage, these words of Paul, and he said, Paul believed not only in the doctrine of human responsibility, but he believed in the doctrine of human inability. And so Paul cries out, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? Wretched, he calls himself. Not not complex and misunderstood. He doesn't say, you know, I'm I'm just a little misguided. I'm just a little, I have bad days. I'm just not perfect. He says, wretched. And Paul doesn't mean wretched in the sense that he has no capacity for good in him. He very much wants, he's very attracted to what is good. He wants to do it. When Paul says he's wretched, he means that he's miserable. He's distressed from this struggle he faces all the time. It's like Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He wants to live in a certain way, but he can't seem to get there. He is a weary warrior. That word rescue. It's a military word describing a soldier who hears his comrade in battle cry in distress and he runs to his side to rescue him from the hands of the enemy. Who will rescue us? And this is where Paul gives thanks when he says, Thanks be to God who delivers, who rescues me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul gives thanks in the struggle. And he gives thanks because he knows that God knows about his struggle. 
And he gives thanks. And you can give thanks because in our struggle, God doesn't expect us to do anything about it because we can't. But he can. And he has done something. Not even the best person in the world is without the ugliness of sin. But not even the worst person in the world is beyond God's love and redemption. Remember, unless you're willing to hear the bad news about yourself, you can't begin to hear the good news. Thanks be to God that he hears our cry when we face this struggle. God has come to our side in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this infection of sin only makes us guilty before the law of God. But Jesus took the guilt by giving his life on the cross. He let death conquer him so that we would not be held guilty. He rescued us by the cross. Is that too simple? No 12 steps. No Bible reading plan. No spiritual program I'm supposed to get on. This is why the cross is foolishness to the world. It seems so unsophisticated, so unlightened, so very unhip. And the only thing God leaves for us to do is believe. And even that's a struggle sometimes, isn't it? But thanks be to God that once we put ourselves in his hands, God's hold on us is a lot stronger than our hold on him. You know, Romans is the letter about what God does for those who have known this inner struggle of trying to be good, trying to do it God's way, and we failed. It is really a letter of grace. And an interesting thing about the word that Paul uses for thanks, it is the same word as the word for grace. It's the same word Paul uses when he said, there's no distinction But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are now justified by his grace as a gift. It is the same word Paul uses when he says we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've obtained access to this grace in which we stand. In the original language in the New Testament in which it was written, there is a word that captures both thanks and and grace, and that is the word that's used here. It's kind of like at prayer, at our tables, before our food. Sometimes we say we're giving thanks. Sometimes we say we're going to give grace, right? While we were in the pit of despair, God demonstrated his grace in Jesus Christ. When human hope is exhausted, salvation is at hand. Where nothing can be expected from humanity, everything can be hoped for from God. For that... Paul gives thanks. And while Paul writes of the struggle in Romans 7, he doesn't end there because he's been delivered by Christ Jesus and stands in this grace. And he goes on to write this in chapter 8, very next part. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done, not we have done, God has done what the law, 
weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We struggle, but we are not condemned. Read Romans and Paul goes on to write how the spirit lives in those who hand this struggle over to Christ and live by faith in him. The Holy Spirit makes us more and more like Christ, less about ourselves, more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes residence and he starts planting new trees. It takes time. But as we nurture our hearts and allow God to work in us, we begin to see growth and change. And we begin to grow in love and we begin to grow in peace and patience and kindness and the good things of God. But it doesn't happen without him. And it happens much better when we daily walk with God. We will still fall. We still struggle. I said I struggle every day. But trees are growing. The forest is getting thicker. And I also entrust this struggle to one who's stronger than me. And actually, this awareness of the struggle, can I just say, it's good. I mean, imagine participating in evil and doing wrong and having no awareness of it. Or not caring. I think that's the worst state anybody could be in, right? You know, guilt isn't all bad. In fact, it can be a tool of self-discovery telling us new things about ourselves. When we feel the rub about something we have done, I think that's actually a good thing. It's a sign of the spirit in us, convicting us, prodding our conscience, showing us where we're wrong so that we can turn back to God. I mean, imagine driving on a road. And a section of that road that you're heading toward has collapsed into a crater. You want a warning sign that says, stop, turn around. Danger ahead to just drive on and and hit that cliff and fall in is just death. A life that is alert to this struggle and to its failure to fulfill all of the law is a life that is alive to the spirit. For that, we can give thanks. We give thanks for God not giving up on us in our struggle. We give thanks that God has come to our rescue. We give thanks that God forgives and restores and heals. We give thanks that he lifts us up when we hit the pavement face first. We give thanks that the victory has already been won. Paul writes in another one of his letters that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks that the responsibility to escape this struggle, it's not our own, but that God has taken the responsibility through Jesus Christ. And so we live by grace. The late Episcopalian priest and writer Robert Capon put it like this. The life of grace is not an effort on our own part to achieve a goal we set ourselves. It is, continually, it is a continually renewed attempt simply to believe 
that someone else has done all the achieving that is needed and to live in relationship with that person, whether we achieve it or not. Now, if that doesn't seem like much to you, you're right. It isn't. And as a matter of fact, the life of grace is even less than that. It's not even our life at all. But the life of that someone else being Jesus Christ, rising like a tide in the ruins of our death. So if you know the struggle, and every Christian does, give thanks for Jesus. Give thanks for the cross. Give thanks for a rescue that we could never do for ourselves. Amen. Jesus, for those of us who are weary warriors, drained and exhausted from the battle to be good, we say thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for fulfilling a law we can never keep and then giving us the credit. Thank you for coming and intervening for us. We thank you for all the life you give to us in Jesus Christ who sets us free. Amen.